0: Good morning. Good morning, Adam. Um, Would you please rise or remain standing if you are able for the reading of God's Word? Today's um, scripture reading comes from Revelation 6 1 through 8. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering, and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from, earth, from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the In the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was death. And Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Michael. Everybody, that's Michael Brown. Thank you again. Let's pray together before we uh, open the word together. Gracious Father, I thank you for um, who you are and all that you've revealed about yourself. Um, We know, Father, that you have revealed yourself as a holy God, um, one to whom the four living creatures cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we never want to forget who you are and all of your transcendent glory and majesty. And yet at the same time, understanding that you became one of us to deliver us from uh, the wrath to come and to make us not only to make us your children and and beloved household members of your your eternal kingdom, and for that we are deeply grateful, especially as we enter and approach Holy Week and Easter and Good Friday, and we just ask that you'd feed our souls this week as we contemplate our own sinfulness, as we contemplate the death of Jesus on Friday, and and of course the victorious resurrection on Sunday. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, take this word this eternal living word that is able to separate marrow from bone and you would do your work which only you can do supernaturally through it in our hearts lord we bow before you and we just ask for the humility to be able to listen with fresh ears in christ's name i pray amen i don't know if any of you have ever had to make one of those rube goldberg Machines, you've heard of those, right? Um, other people call them this uh, chain chain reaction machines, you know, where one thing knocks you into another and another and another, and it's pretty fun. I never had to do one as a kid, but I had to do one with my kids as part of a um, part of a project for school. And uh, you know, it's pretty simple, or, but but sometimes hard to come up with an idea. So, like taking a Hot Wheel, you know, and putting it at the top of a track and And then down at the bottom of the track, if you were to let it go, it hits like a domino, and then that domino hits another domino. It's like a snake of dominoes, and and it hits the last domino and probably hits something like a little teeter-totter where another Hot Wheel is perfectly balanced. And when that last domino hits the teeter-totter, shifts the weight, the car goes down, maybe another track, and hits a a cork with a pin on the end that hits a balloon and pop, right? (laughs) That's a a Rube Goldberg machine or a a chain reaction uh, machine. And that illustrates, of course, how God has made this world. This uh, is a world of cause and effect. Um, Things are affected by other things, and, of course, we know this. This is the way God made the world, um, that what you sow, you also reap, right? So I have these two dead birches in the back of my uh, my, my, my house, and um, they're, they're dying. They're not quite dead yet, but they're pretty close. I think we're going to take them out in this next week. But if you were to ask me, huh, Dan, what caused your birch trees to die or in the process of dying? I'd say, well, it's this thing called the bronze birch borer. That's a lot of bees, right? But there's this beetle that gets into the uh, the white birch trees, and you can tell because it has this like. Uh, rust-colored sap that comes out of the holes. If you were to ask me the n- next question, is like, well, why didn't the bronze birch borer bore into your tree 10 years ago? To which I'd probably say, well, they say it's the drought. So the drought weakened the tree, making it vulnerable to the bronze birch borer, and now it's dying. Which then we could ask the question, well, what caused the drought? And of course, there's a number of controversial answers. It could be, uh, these are just general cycles of creation. Others might say, no, this is man's fault. It's global warming, right, and cause-effect, cause-effect. And that's how we understand the world around us as cause and effect. When we find somebody has a disease, well, we look for the cause of that disease, right? Same thing with history. We look at history, and we look at cause and effect. So, when someone asks, so how did World War II happen? Now, there's a lot of answers to that, of course, but one would be, well, the rise of fascism, Third Reich, and Hitler in particular. Well, what gave rise to Hitler? Which, again, a number of answers to that, but one might be able to say, well, the aftermath of, of World War I created the perfect storm in which a man like that could rise to power. Which then you could ask, well, what caused World War I? And then you could go back and back to, you know, cause-effect, 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 which is how God made this world, right? He and his providence sustains each and every thing so that it acts consistently with its nature. So the reason why gravity pulls my glasses to the ground if I were to drop them is because God has willed and sustained the properties of gravity to do just that every time. It makes science, it makes physics possible because God works so faithfully in creation to sustain it. But here's the thing. We live in a secularized world that has excluded God from that equation so that we if we're not careful, interpret history and life in this world as simply a horizontal cause-effect mechanism. And we don't open ourselves up to the reality, the biblical reality, that there's somebody else who is the ultimate cause of all things. That is, it's not just a horizontal, like, domino effect of history, one thing causing another and another and another, but there is a vertical line that leads right to the throne of God who is ultimately in charge of Everything. And that's the part where, if we're not careful, we can be secularized in our thinking. What we're going to find in the verses that Michael read is that what happens in heaven makes a difference on earth. That there is this whole vertical uh, dimension to this whole cause-effect thing, and ultimately what happens on earth originates in heaven. Not here on earth. It originates in heaven. Not here on earth. So we're going to Step into chapter 6 of Revelation. Chapter 5, if you remember, was an enthronement passage. That is the enthronement of Jesus as symbolized by this scroll with seven seals. Again, a a symbol of authority that that, that Yahweh has transferred, divine authority, to Jesus, to the lamb that was slain. And now he is, as he opens the scrolls or the, 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 the seals of the scroll, things happen on earth that originate in heaven. So he is enthroned, he is now in charge of human history of bringing judgment to a close and also salvation, both of those things, to a close, to its climactic end. So he has been enthroned, that is, as we have argued, uh, an event that has already taken place. All things have been placed under the feet of Christ, and he's in the process of bringing all things under his his rule. So that was chapter 5, now we step into chapter 6, and he opens the first four seals, And they hang together because, as he does, four horsemen come out, or what some have called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, I hope that by the time we're done, you'll see that this applies to you, not to just some future generation. But before I look at the four horsemen in in order, let me just make a couple of preliminary comments. One just has to do with, I hope this is obvious by now, that these horsemen are, are in fact, symbolic. Like, they're, they're, they're not they're not to be taken, taken literal. The reason I say that is because some people come to, to the book of Revelation and think it's cryptic. Like, somehow you have to have a secret code to decipher it. Um, and sometimes people think only people in the future actually will have the code to be able to decipher because they'll see what's going on. Now, it simply is, is not the case. Like, when John's using these symbols the people of the first century would have understood what they meant. In the same way that when we say, so are we gonna talk about the 800 pound gorilla in the room? We know we're not talking about a real gorilla, right? We're talking about, there's a problem and no one's talking about it, it's just big 800 pound gorilla, pink gorilla in the room. No, it's just a way of talking about the truth. It's like we're just avoiding it, right? Now, a thousand years ago, someone might go, what's the deal with the 800 pound gorilla, right? It's not meant to be taken literally. So here we have um, a symbol. And they're drawn out of the Old Testament. Like John is mining, like you mine for gold. He's mining images out of the Hebrew scriptures. And this one comes out of a judgment passage in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Zechariah has a vision like John's, and the Hebrew people are, are very pictorial. They love images. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were, 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 were made of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second, black horses, the third, white horses, and the fourth chariot, dabbled horses, all of them strong. There is some minor variation. In Revelation 6, it's horsemen. Here, horses are drawing chariots, vessels, Or vehicles of war. The colors are almost spot on: black, red, dappled, white. Minor variation, dappled probably, but I think it's pretty clear that he's mining these images out of this this text, and it's a judgment text. That is, these chariots of these different colored horses are being called by Yahweh and then dispatched. Like he sends them out north and south to punish the nations that had invaded Israel. So this is judgment. These are judgment images. Second, four colors correspond to what they represent. White, in ancient times, of course, oftentimes the victor rode an actual white horse. So white horse corresponds to conquest or victory. The red horse, of course, people are slaying each other in blood, red blood, so forth. So, the colors correspond to their judgments. Third, the four horsemen are summoned. They're commanded, they're directed by the throne. Important to recognize. Four different times. Each time, the horsemen are, are directed to come. Now, I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with the voice of thunder, Come. That is, this isn't an invitation for John to come. No, this is the throne. These these angelic attendants around the throne commanding these horsemen to come forth. They cannot resist. They can't rebel. They must submit to the throne. You see? So they're commanded to come. This whole idea of cause and effect. Right now, the cause is the throne. When when, when he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come. And when he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, come. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth uh, living creature say, come. Like a dog that's commanded to come and sit. The point being that all of this is coming from the throne where Christ now rules. Where does the cause ultimately rest? It rests with the throne of Christ. So, with those three things just kind of acknowledged, let's look at these in, in order. First, the white horse, a symbol of war or conquest. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, an instrument of war, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So, he's given a bow, obviously a, an instrument of war, and a crown was given doesn't take it by himself or by his own strength. It's given. By who? By the one who's on the throne. We know from the Bible that God is able to raise up and tear down. The heart of the king is in the hand of God. There is no authority outside of what the throne offers or or confers. So this crown, this authority to wage war or conquer is given to this horseman. Some have interpreted this as a reference to Christ on a white horse, and I understand why, because in chapter 19, Jesus comes back in his triumphant victory and on a white horse, right? So you connect the two, you're like, well, this could be Jesus coming, not coming back necessarily, but um, conquering the world through the gospel, some would interpret. So the gospel of the kingdom goes forth, people are bowing the knee to Jesus in faith, and so... His kingdom is being built. So that's the conquest that some would say is in in view, is the conquest of Jesus. But there's a number of reasons why I don't think that fits. One of which is just the difficulty of understanding Jesus is already in the throne, and he's the one who's calling the shots, and and then he's commanding himself to come or giving himself a crown. See, that doesn't work out so well. Two, the passage that these are drawn from, Zechariah, the white horses, are every bit as much judgment as the other horses. Three, the other three horses clearly are negative, which would make this one positive, uh, more difficult to understand, inconsistency. And then last but not least, is that if you read Revelation 19 carefully, uh, there are some discernible differences. That is, in in Revelation 19, where Jesus comes back on the white horse and has a name which no one knows, He has many diadems. This one, a crown. That's it. So I think it's better in view to to understand this as as a conquest, as as the expansion of, of, of one's authority or one's domain, one's kingdom. The question is, okay, then for us, in terms of understanding how this applies to us, is this something entirely future? And... Quite frankly, I've been programmed to think that these four horsemen just were like for the last little bit before Jesus comes back. So it's future. So it really doesn't relate to the first century, second century, third century. It just relates to the end time people. But I think there's reasons to understand that this is something that is, was present in the first century and will continue through history and will escalate towards the end. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, one of which is that these four horsemen uh, g- coincide rather well with um, what Jesus taught of his disciples regarding what to expect as they made their way into the future. This is Matthew chapter 24 six through eight. He says, "And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, don't be afraid, freaked out. For this must take place. it's a necessity. But the end is not yet." This is going to be kind of the context in which the disciples live out their Christianity. But the end's not yet. For nation will rise against nation. There's conquest. There's the white horse, if you will. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines. That's the black horse. And earthquakes in various places. Just Luke's uh, rendition, he adds pestilence, which is the pale horse. And yet he clearly says, the end is not yet, but don't be alarmed. So it coincides with the teachings of Jesus. Is this is what you're going to expect as disciples. This isn't just a future thing. But then you notice at the very end there, he says, these are just the beginning of birth pains. You know, <laughs> I've never given birth, as you can tell, but my wife has given birth three times, and I was there for all of the, the, uh, the births of my children. And we all know what birth pains are like. Um, And if you haven't experienced it personally, you can read a book or talk to somebody who's done it. You know, it's like they come, and then there's they go away, and the birth king comes again, and it goes away. But as you get closer to birth, they get both more intense and more frequent. And I think that is an accurate understanding of how these things will play out. That through history, there have been expansions, and there have been conquests, and kingdom has dominated kingdom, and other kingdoms come back and dominate the old kingdom. And that's kind of the ebb and flow of history is this this domination of, of human beings over other human beings. Um, the other thing, I, reason I think this is a present issue or, or, or one that has uh, been part of history since the time of Christ and even before that is, is the first century readers would have understood this to relate to them. Certainly, they, they heard the reports by the time Revelation was written, probably in the 90s A.D., they would have heard about General Vaspation, who was dispatched by the emperor who invaded Israel, and then later his, his son, General Titus, would lay waste to Jerusalem and hundreds of thousands of Jewish people would die. They would be thinking the expansion of Roman Empire, conquests, oftentimes mingled with the blood of Christians. And so it's been through, through history, the ebb and flow of, of, of war, from the Ottoman Turks to Napoleon, to Hitler, and it'll continue. It will continue. And this is an evidence, church, of God's judgment on the world. A world that does not want the Lord, a world that does not want God, will implode. It will tear itself apart because of human hatred and ambition and jealousy and envy. It'll tear itself apart. And the farther it goes down this road, the more painful, intense, and frequent the birth pains will be. That's not something that's supposed to frighten us, though. Like, what I don't want you to do is think, wow, this is a really depressing message. Like, that, 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 this, this, this white horse is, makes me want to go to my doctor and ask for some kind of a Prozac pill or something like that, you know? This, this isn't meant to, like, frighten us. As Jesus said, don't be alarmed. It's not meant to frighten us. It's meant to equip us and prepare us like this is what you're going to deal with in history. But understand, it's not just dominoes. This comes from God. This originates with Christ and his throne. So we understand, hey, God is in control of this mess because God is giving people over to their selfish desires, kingdoms, desires. And I would say this. It's really important to keep this in mind. Whenever cataclysmic events happen, we tend to think of them as exclusively judgment, uh, in the category of judgment. But they're not. Almost every time there is a cataclysm, there is both judgment and salvation happening simultaneously. So the flood, you know, Noah's flood comes and drowns most of the world, is the same moment where salvation takes place, where eight souls are saved through the ark the cross of Jesus Christ that was the outpouring of judgment simultaneously with the outpouring of God's love and grace towards us so for example if you were a christian living in sri lanka and a tide not a tidal wave a tsunami hit the shores of your your town and a christian and a non-christian were side by side and both died one would be given the mercy of being in the presence of God. and see, when when catastrophes happen for the Christian, it's never judgment, it's always a a quick ticket home, right? (laughs) To live is, to die is gain, Paul said. But for the other, someone who doesn't know the Lord, well, there's a different direction and it is an act of judgment, so simultaneously. In the same way that when things like this happen in the world, And there's this ebb and flow of conquest and war. Those are unique opportunities in which Christians get to shine. We we get to to shine. That is, we get to testify to the eternal gospel of Jesus. We get to love people, help people in these times. And quite frankly, you look back in history and you realize that, 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 like, for example, the Nazi Germany of the last century, Um. People like Cory ten Boom, of course her story is famous, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Christians who in the middle of this tyranny and expansion and war and loss, they helped and they made a name for Christ. It's an opportunity. that We're supposed to see in all of this, I think, an opportunity. In the book of Revelation, as the darkness grows, so does the salvation. So that by the time this time of affliction comes to an end. John can't even count how many people are wearing white robes because they're coming to Christ. Why? Because Christians are being Christians in these times. So some of you probably have been to the Holocaust Museum in in Washington, D.C. I have not been to that one yet, but I have been to the Yad Vashem in Jerusalem just outside, some of you have been there. That is the um, the Jewish version of Holocaust Museum. And the fact that you go there just outside of Jerusalem and walk through it with Jewish people is deeply stirring. And to walk over shoes of Jewish people and to watch Jewish students walking over these shoes with a glass kind of glassful floor that you can see the shoes of people who had actually died in the extermination camps is just unbelievable. But you know, you go outside of the complex of the Yad Vashem, And there's this place called the Garden of the Righteous in which trees were planted uh, commemorating Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, who helped save Jewish men, women, and children, many of whom were Christians. In the middle of the Holocaust, there were Christians who shined a bright light. And I think that's today positive and recognize that so when the throne says, "Hey, there's going to be a time of tyranny, guess what? It's time to be Christian, like we should be all the time, but a time to help, a time to love, a time to be there." So that's the white horse is war, or conquest. It has, it will and will continue to be a part of our world, the red horse. I think this is a picture of civil unrest and violence. So when he opened the second seal, I heard the living, uh, second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted. I love that. Permitted by who? Permitted by the one on the throne. Can't do anything without permission. To take peace from the earth. You're like Wait, God took peace from the earth? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, there's a, one of my neighbors has this thing that says, Make peace, not war, and I understand the sentiment behind it. But the world in which we live in is at war, precisely because it's abandoned the Lord. So it was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another or slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. So the first one's given a bow. This one's given a sword. And when it says so that people should slay one another, I think that's something beyond war. This is just people killing each other, slaying each other, civil unrest, violence. (laughs) Does this not like define the time we live in? This was just in the last two weeks. We've witnessed it in Georgia. Colorado, and before that, Columbine, Sandy Hook, Las Vegas, San Bernardino. And that really isn't anything compared to the genocide in Africa in the last century. People killing each other. That's a world under judgment. A world that abandons the Lord is a, is a world that will implode. People will be brutal to each other. And kill each other, and yet at the same time, I want to remind you, there's a positive in this. That in times like this, you know, where people are giving into every one of their fleshly appetites, and it's dog eat dog, and is uh, those are times when Christians can show a completely different side. You can show the Spirit by way of love, loving your Enemies, blessing those who curse you, doing good to those who persecute or hurt you—that's unheard of. And yet, that is exactly what we're called to do, aren't we? So these are these are not just. Uh, given to Christians this, these these visions of the horsemen to just terrify us. It's, it's, it's precisely the opposite. It's to prepare us but also to recognize that God is at work in this. This comes from him. It's the throne. There's nothing that happens in this world. This does not originate there. And to see an opportunity to overcome, to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. You know what? Just a side note. I forgot to say this in the introduction, but I firmly believe that this whole cause-effect thing, um, chain reaction, is that your actions in life as a Christian will affect someone a thousand generations from now if the Lord tarries. Every single action in life affects other people and it ripples throughout the generations. It's not just your children and grandchildren that are going to be affected by your life, but generations and generations. Here we have a history of War and conquest and people killing each other and how we act in the midst of that sends an effect. Third, the black horse. Famine. And I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, and that's probably the voice of Christ, the slain lamb, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil or wine. The f- first horseman had a, a bow, and the second one a sword, and this one has scales, right, instead of scales. But scales were used in ancient times during times of famine to ration, ration food. And so here you have a ration of a quart of wheat for a denarius, a denarius is a day's wage. And Roman historians tell us that a a quart of wheat would feed one person for one day. So, a little imagination here. You work all day, 8, 10, 12 hours, working your finger to the bone, and all you get is enough to just feed you. Or maybe you go the cheaper route and get some barley, where you can get three quarts and maybe feed your family, but no more. There's nothing left over for Starbucks, Dutch bros, car payments cell phones, nothing is this this is this is famine, shortage of food, scarcity of food, and now everything's being rationed. of course, we don't know what that's like. Last year at this time, I remember going down the chicken aisle and it was all gone. pretty soon there's there's signs saying you only have one or only take two and if you found out that there was toilet paper somewhere, there was a rush, you know? Just, everybody had to say, you can only have so many, and we're not taking all that back. We kind of understand a little bit, but that's not famine. Like, when you're, when, you're, when you're struggling to find food for your table, that's life and death. You know, what's interesting is that if you dig into the last century, the 20th century, tens of millions of people died of, of starvation. They estimate in China in the middle of the 1900s that between 10 and 30 million died of starvation. That's just China. Add into that India and Ethiopia and North Korea and other places, Russia was another huge one. Tens of millions of people died in the last century from famine. As I said, this this reality is already here. If the world wants to turn its back on the provider... Well, this is going to be a form of judgment. Who's your provider? The Lord is. He owns the wheat and the barley and everything else. You take it away for a little bit and see what happens. But again, this is not negative for Christians. This is the background background in which we shine. So we're told in Acts chapter 11, for example, that there was a great famine in the Middle East during the time of the early church. Jerusalem was hit hard, right? So Christians experience all of this stuff. We are not somehow ex- exempted from it. Ex- we've experienced war, and we've experienced bloodshed and mayhem and slaughter, and we've experienced famine. And in the first century, what what they did was like, okay, the church in Jerusalem's having a tough time. So Paul says, guess what? We're taking a collection. And he goes to the Gentile churches and he takes a collection and brings it back to ease the suffering of the. Christians in Jerusalem, it's an opportunity to show love and share and generosity, to show that we live for something more than bread, <laughs> and we trust the one who provides for us. You know, it's, it's an opportunity to be refined in your faith and to call out to God and say, Lord, I only have enough food for my family for one day. Man, what a, what a, what a refining time. That is, for Christians, it always works together for good, Right? Even though the world is going to pot, and these are aspects of judgment, there are parts that we play. Our lives should have an impact and effect. And last, but certainly not least, is the final horseman, the pale horse. As I said, the colors correspond to the judgment. This one's called death, and pale is the color of a lifeless corpse. No color. And it's probably, this one is the summary of the other three, because you'll notice the same words show up. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Like I said, this is kind of a summary. Death is the, is the, is the pale horse. Now this is almost, by the way, a direct reference back to Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21, where these things are mentioned. Like I said, he mines his images out of the Old Testament. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it, man and beast. Now, pestilence. <laughs> That's contagious disease, people. <laughs> It has been here, it is here, and it will come. This has been part of the experience of the church from the beginning, from the black plague in Europe to, to the Spanish flu, and here we are. Whatever you might think of the COVID virus, it has affected our world. Where does it come from? Don't say China. You know, ultimately, we need to understand that this comes from the throne of God as God's unfolding judgment on the nations, not on us, but on the nations who have abandoned him, who have said, we don't want you. We don't want your word. We don't want your morality. We don't want your authority over us. Well, this is a world in judgment. And at the same time, a place for Christians to shine, as they did during times of plague. Like, I think at last Easter I shared that Martin Luther took people with black plague into his home and lost his his daughter as a result. And yet, what a demonstration of the willingness to serve other people at your own risk. That's Christianity, raw, unfiltered, different, courageous. And it will have an impact on subsequent generations to come. So we have... These four unfolding judgments, which I I, I understand as present realities, that escalate to finality, the birth pains. They're present, and they will escalate toward finality. And we can expect these things to continue to come. Our job is to trust the king and to follow him in the midst of it and overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, and not to be afraid of them. And I'll tell you why you don't have to be afraid. Because we have a king that on this day, thousands of years ago, rode into Jerusalem, but not on a white horse. If Jesus had ridden ridden into Jerusalem on a white horse of conquest, no one would be left standing. Instead, he rode into Jerusalem as a king, humble, on the foal of a donkey, to stretch himself out and give his life so that these judgments would pass to him instead of us. So that we know that condemnation has passed. We do not need to fear these things. We need to be faithful to live out our Christian faith in the midst of these things and honor and glorify the Lord. Do I hear a little amen? Amen. Thank you, that helps. Lord God, we pray for your spirit to just move in us. Give us courage. Give us the willingness to see things differently than the world around us. Help us to understand that your throne um, is at the top of all authority, and nothing happens here on earth that does not pass by uh, your gavel of decree. So we pray that you'd help us to trust, follow, and just to be a light for those around us. In Christ's name,
0: amen.